Sketches from Scripture Presents. Wandering, Wisdom from the Wilderness, a teaching series from the stories of the Torah. Wandering is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be continuing our exploration of the narrative structure and style of the books of the Torah, focusing primarily on the book of Numbers. This study will give us context for a better understanding of Scripture. It will help us trust more in these Scriptures by demystifying them. Taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events and real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast reminds you that even in times of wilderness wandering, the Creator of heaven and earth is with you. If you enjoy this podcast, Please share it with others. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com, find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. So just quick review, the book of Numbers, which we'll primarily have been looking at in this series, in the Hebrew is called In the Wilderness. That's the title because it's taken from the first word of the book, which in Hebrew translates to In the Wilderness. We have looked at a little bit of Exodus and Leviticus. And so again, I just want to go over these quickly so you kind of remember the broad chunks. So that way, if you're, if you're thinking... Yeah, where is that story about the golden calf? You can at least find the general area of where that is. So Exodus 1 through 6, it's the history of the Hebrews post-Genesis. Moses, God's call. 7 through 11 are the 10 plagues. 12 through 15 are uh, the Passover and the the Exodus, uh, like the actual Passover with the, the, the 10th plague. 16 through 18, the Lord provides between leaving Egypt and God showing up on Mount Sinai in chapter 19. 19 through 40 is God on top of Sinai, the people at the foot of Sinai, Moses kind of going back and forth. You have the Ten Commandments, the Lord's glory, the instructions for the tabernacle, the tabernacle being built. Um, chapter 32, you've got the golden calf. Chapter 34, you've got the Lord defining himself to Moses. Um, so all that happens there, 19 through 40, there at the foot of Sinai. Let me get Leviticus 1 through 7 are about offerings. 8 through 10 is the ordination of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and then the judgment against Nadab and Abihu in chapter 10, which that seems to be sort of an exciting incident to now rattle off a bunch of really specific laws about all the ways that we as the people of God are not going to live anymore. And so chapters 11 through 27 are, which is sort of what we refer to as the, the law or the, the, the purity laws and that sort of thing. And um, so Exodus covers, you know, the first few chapters of Exodus cover several decades. Most of Exodus covers um, a a few months. Leviticus looks like maybe it it basically covers a couple of days, quite possibly. Um, And then uh, numbers. So chapters one through eight are the census and organization, how they're going to be organized around the tabernacle camp. Chapter nine, you get the second Passover. So this is now a year from the time of the Exodus from Egypt. Uh, a year from the time of the first Passover. So we've got the second Passover and then moving into the wilderness, the first uh, sort of movement of the camp. 
right away, right out of the gate, there's immediate rebellion from the people who ask for quail, from Miriam and Aaron who challenge Moses's authority. 13 and 14, you get the spies sent into Canaan. 10 bring back a bad report. Only Caleb and Joshua bring a good report. Israel listens to the 10 bad reports. And God disciplines Israel with 40 years of wandering in the desert until this generation dies away, leaving only uh, Caleb and Joshua from this generation still alive as they enter the promised land. Um, 15 through 19, you have different stories about rebellion versus holiness. This is uh, the man picking up wood on the Sabbath. This is um, some laws about remembering God's uh, commands. This is um, Korah's rebellion and uh, everyone that, that went along with that. The earth swallowing up people and the fire going out, this sort of thing. Night 18 and 19 is about the priests and the things that will be done for them. 20 is water from the rock. And 21, as we looked at last night, is the fiery serpent or the bronze serpent. And so tonight we'll be looking at Numbers beginning chapter 22. And this is the story of Balaam's donkey. And uh, it's just, it's such a bizarre story. This is one of those stories in Numbers where uh, I, I have to wonder people who say, oh, numbers is so boring. It's like, okay, well, maybe you didn't read the story because I think it's pretty hilarious. Um, so we're going to be looking at, at, uh, at that tonight. And so let's, um, let's just go ahead and just go right to the text and I'll, I'll make a few notes, uh, along the way. So we're in numbers chapter 22 through 24 is primarily what we're going to be, uh, taking a look at. Uh, oh, yeah. So before we do that, just real quick, uh, just to kind of set up. So let me just show you the, the very beginning of the of the passage here, and then we'll go back and set a few things up. So here's Numbers chapter 22. In verse 1, it says, The Israelites traveled on and camped in the plains of Moab near the Jordan across from Jericho. Now, Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So we kind of skipped over this, but at the end of chapter 21, after the the fiery serpent, the bronze serpent story, the last half of 21 is the Israelites want to pass through where the Amorites are. The Amorites say no, and they get in a skirmish and Israel defeats them soundly. And so Balak has heard about this and now he's terrified. And so where is Balak? Well, they're coming into the plains of Moab. So Balak is in Moab. So where is Moab? We should look at that. So I've shown you this map before. This is not the one that I have marked up, but I think you can still sort of see where everything is. So if you look towards the center right of the map up at the top, um, you'll see the Dead Sea there just to the right of Israel. So the big blue uh, on the left half of the top is the Mediterranean and then the small blue body of water just to the right of that. That's the Dead Sea. And just just on the right shore of the Dead Sea, you'll see mountain ranges that's the mountain ranges of Moab, that area there. So modern day nation of Jordan. So that kind of gives you an idea of where Moab is. And so south of that, somewhere south, southwest, southeast, somewhere in the wilderness, south of that, the desert, south of that is where the Israelites have been wandering for 40 years. And now they're headed to enter the promised land. So um back in, I think it was chapter 20, we decided those events were in the 40th year. So the, the time of their discipline is coming to a close. They're about to enter the promised land. And so they're making their way 
uh, up toward where they're going to cross the Jordan River, which will be north of um, actually where they're going to cross is off this off this map, off this photo to the north, uh, up above the Dead Sea. The Jordan River flows south into the Dead Sea. So <clears throat> Moab is there just to the east, just to the right of the Dead Sea. So they're coming up presumably sort of from the south there. They've tried to go around Edom. That's We read about that last night. They've uh, gone through the, the place of the, the Amorites, and now where they find themselves in Moab. So um, here is... Um, so this is another photo. It shows you at the bottom. That's the Dead Sea at the bottom. And you see the Jordan River coming down from the Sea of Galilee way up north. And this is obviously these camels drawn on here are not at all to scale, of course. But just to kind of give you a sense that possible route of the Jews uh, crossing the Jordan somewhere near Jericho, because that is the first place that they go once they cross the Jordan River. And so um, this is giving you a sense of where they're going to cross the Jordan River. So everything on the right of the Jordan River, everything to the east of the Jordan River is the modern day nation of Jordan and these mountain ranges that are off to the east of the Dead Sea would be Moab. One more, this is just from Google Earth or Google Maps or something, or Apple Maps or something. So this is the modern day Israel. So you see interstate labels and that sort of thing. But what I want to show you here, the body of water at the bottom there is the Dead Sea. You can see the Jordan Valley as it goes up toward the Sea of Galilee, which is the body of water in the top right corner. And so these mountain ranges down here in the bottom right corner, that's the, the mountains of Moab kind of overlooking. So this kind of gives you a sense of what Moses would have seen on top of Moab looking toward the uh, promised land from the high ranges of Moab. He would be able to see if the uh, weather were clear, he would be able to see quite far and possibly see the whole um, the whole promised land or most of it all the way, maybe even all the way to the uh, Mediterranean. I'm not sure, but it's not far. Israel is not a very not a very big place. I think I can't remember the exact uh, size, but um, Israel I think is um, uh, about the same size as the state of Tennessee or or maybe smaller, uh, maybe more like the state of New Jersey, something like that. So it's it's not a very big not a very big place. Um. So going back to the text here, so Balak sees the Israelites encamped in Moab, and he's terrified because he heard what they did to the Amorites. So uh, you know, going on verse three, Moab was terrified of the people because they were numerous, and Moab dreaded the Israelites. And just again, let's remember where Moab came from. Um, Moab is was the son of one of the daughters of Lot. So this is the people that have descended from an incestuous relationship uh, from a drunken, passed out lot and one of his daughters. So Moab and the Ammonites um, both are the, the two descendants from the two daughters, one from each daughter of this uh, incestuous relationship. And so that's always gives you, when you see the Moabites or, or the Ammonites show up, that's always giving you a little bit of foreshadowing uh, that, this is something that's not going to go well, right? So we see that sort of happening here. So they have a reason to be afraid. Verse four. So the Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde will devour everything around us like an ox eats up the green plants in the field. So they're talking with the other, uh, the leaders of the, the, the tribes that sort of live near them and trying to sort of get them on board with getting the Israelites out of there. Since Balak, son of Zippor, was Moab's king at the time, he sent messengers to Balaam, son of Peor, at Pithor which is by the Euphrates in the land of his people. 
uh, Balak said to him, look, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the surface of the land and are living right across from me. Please come and put a curse on these people for me because they are more powerful than I am. I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. The elders of Moab and Midian departed with fees for divination in hand. So let's back up just a little bit here to verse five. And we see Balaam, son of Beor at Pethor, which is by the Euphrates in the land of his people. So when it says in the land of his people, that is telling us one thing. That's telling us that Balaam is not an Israelite, okay? He's not been traveling with them. He's not been enslaved in Egypt and is not part of the Exodus. He's not coming out of that camp. But he's living over in the land of the Euphrates. Now, what's interesting is that's the general area where Abraham comes from. So we see that Balaam has some sort of knowledge of, you know, the God most high. And he, the, the language that at least the writer of numbers uses is the language that the God that is speaking to Balaam in these passages that we're about to look at is Jehovah God, is the God of the Israelites that is speaking to him. And that is the God that he seems to know. That is the God that he seems to, um, to speak about. So it may be that this is, uh, he uses a lot of the same language. The word El just means God, but that's what the Canaanites referred to as their God. Well, who were the Canaanites? Well, Canaan was the son of Ham. Canaan was, again, a product of an incestuous relationship, uh, we think, between Ham and um, sexually assaulting his own mother in an attempt to usurp authority after the flood. We looked at that in the lesson of Genesis. Even so, the only religion that Canaan would have known would have been the religion of his father and his grandfather and his aunts and uncles, and that would be the worship of Jehovah God, who they would call El. And so Abraham, the person that he calls El, would be, he would think of as the God most high, the God that created everything. <clears throat> and so it stands to reason that someone living over in the Euphrates area and sort of the Canaan region, you know, would have some kind of sense uh, of the same kind of God, even if they don't have the worship right, even if they're not um, a faithful person, even if they're not, even if they're not one of the Israelites, which he does not appear to be, according to the text. So there's another connection here with Abraham, besides just the geography from where he comes from over by the Euphrates. That's where Ur of the Chaldees is over there by the Euphrates. That's where uh, ba Balaam is coming from. There's another connection though, and that's what Balak says to him, where he says, I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. So that tells us first something about Balaam. It tells us that he is some kind of prophet, capital P prophet. Uh, in fact, in other uh, texts outside the Bible, he's referred to as a seer. So someone who can predict the future, basically. And um, so he was obviously renowned that these guys in Moab knew about him and he lived way over in the Euphrates. So he had some sort of reputation for telling the future of some kind. So we understand that about him. But when, when Balak uses this language referring to Balaam's uh, uh, abilities as a prophet, as a seer, uh, he uses language that God says to Abraham, right? When God, God says to Abram, I think it's in Genesis 12, where he says, um, you know, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse, or he says something similar, right? So we see a version of that Balak saying that to Balaam. There's a reason for that. So remember, one of the things that we're really looking at here is the storytelling, right? What kind, what does the storytelling tell us about the story that we're reading, about the content, about the events and that sort of thing? So right away, we're getting several cues to be thinking about Abraham, right? And so we're going to sort of come into this story looking for Balaam to be 
an Abraham type character, which really sets us up for the comedy that is going to ensue because Balaam is not really anything like Abraham at all. Okay, so uh, let's continue with reading the story here. So <clears throat> um, the elders of Moab and Midian, they leave to go uh, speak with Balaam and they've got money in hand. They came to Balaam and reported Balak's words to him. He said to them, spend the night here and I'll give you the answer the Lord tells me. So the officials of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and asked, who are these men with you? Balaam replied to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent this message to me. Look, a people has come out of Egypt and they covered the surface of the land, put a curse on them for me. I may be able to fight against them, drive them away. God said to Balaam, you are not to go with them. You are not to curse these people for they are blessed. So Balaam got up the next morning and said to Balak's officials, hey, go back to your land because the Lord has refused to let me go with you. I just want to point out one thing about the text here. Noticed up until this point, it's been God, 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 God. And then here he says the Lord. So when you see God in this story in particular, that's the word L, E-L. When you see the Lord and see how it's in lowercase capital letters, that is this translation letting you know that in the Hebrew, this is what's known as the uh, the tetrama, tet, I can never say the word. It's the four letters is what it means. Uh, Y-H-W-H, which uh, we will say sometimes in English, uh, a version of that would be Jehovah. And so <clears throat> when you see that lowercase, uh, small lowercase Lord, that's letting you know that is the four letter word. Uh, that is the name for God that Jews will not even utter because it is so holy. And so uh, I don't want to do it here on this Facebook live, but in uh, English, we've sort of transliterated it into Jehovah, which is something kind of similar. And um, most, um, okay, I just had a little disconnection there. So I think, I think we're back hopefully, but uh, most, um, most um, Jews will just say the Lord when they come across that in their text. So when you see that lowercase uh, capital, lowercase capital letters for Lord, um, that is that that uh, the the four letters Y H W H, and that's the first time that's used here in the story there in verse thirteen. So we see God, 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 and we might be asking ourselves, yeah, but which God? And this lets us know, no, this is because here's the thing: the word L is also a generic word, which means God, and could really mean any God, but that Y H W H is only ever used anywhere to refer to the God of the Israelites, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So by verse 13, there is no mistaking which God it is that is speaking to Balaam. Verse 14, the officials of Moab arose, returned to Balak, and reported, Balaam refused to come with us. Turning the page, chapter 15, uh, uh, sorry, verse chapter 22, verse 15. Balak sent officials again who were more numerous and higher in rank than the others. They came to Balaam and said to him, this is what Balak, son of Zippor, says, let nothing keep you from coming to me, for I will greatly honor you and do whatever you ask me. So please come and put a curse on these people for me. But Balaam responded to the servants of Balak, look, if Balak were to give me his whole house full of silver and gold, I could not go against the command of the Lord, my God. So it's very interesting that he's... He, Speaking of the Lord, he calls him my God. So even though Balaam is not an Israelite, again, he seems to have some sort of relationship, some sort of knowledge of this God and considers him to be his God. Don't know for sure that Balaam is monotheistic, but um, has some sort of relationship with the God that is the same God as the God of, of Israel. 
I could not go against the command of the Lord my God to do anything small or great. Please stay here overnight as the others did, so that I may find out what else the Lord has to tell me. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, Since these men have come to summon you, get up and go with them, but you must only do what I tell you. When he got up in the morning, Balaam saddled his donkey and went with the officials of Moab. <clears throat> and now we come to the story of Balaam's donkey and the angel. So what's happened here? More important men have come with more money and have said, no, no, really, please come with us and curse these people. Balaam says, you know, has, says, stay here and we'll see. And this time God says, since they've come again, you can go with them. Now we're going to see in the very next verse, go ahead and we'll turn, turn the corner here and look at uh, verse 22. But God was incensed that Balaam was going. Okay, so what's the deal here? Didn't God just tell him to go with him? All right, look at it kind of like this. Balaam's already asked and God's already given an answer, right? God's answer was not unclear. God's answer was not wait. God's answer was not um, have patience, you know, or anything like that. God's answer was very clear. No, don't do it, right? It was very clear. It was immediate. So God answered the prayer. It's done. And yet Balaam asks a second time. So this is uh, sort of exhibiting a lack of faith in the answer that, that God has given. So when God tells him the second time, yeah, go with him. And then immediately he's incensed that Balaam is going. It seems inconsistent just sort of reading on the surface. But I think of it like this. Okay. Have you ever had your parents do this or more likely an older sibling? I, I speak hypothetically, of course, who says, you know, you better not touch that. You better not touch that. And when you ask a third time or fourth time, they finally say, okay, touch it and see what happens right? Okay. That's not actually an invitation to touch it, right? That's not actually permission. It's saying, okay, you want to do it so bad? Why don't you do it? And we'll watch what happens when you do it. So that seems to be more the tone of what's happening the second time God says, hey, these you've allowed these men to stay the night again. Fine. Go with them, but watch what happens. And so let's watch what happens. So remember the setup here, we've kind of been thinking of, of Balaam a little bit as, a, as an Abraham uh, type character possibly, right? Uh, but God was incensed that Balaam was going, and the angel of the Lord took his stand on the path to oppose him. So one way in which he's already not like Abraham is God told Abraham to go. Abraham said no word and went. This is the exact opposite. Balaam asked to go. God said, do not go. And Balaam just keeps saying more words. Well, come on, let me go. And finally, God lets him go. So already he's an anti-Abraham out of the gate, right? Um, and now the angel of the Lord is standing on the path to oppose him, which again, Abraham met with the angel of the Lord when the angel of the Lord was on his way to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And so, again, another call back to the Abraham story. Uh, Balaam was riding his donkey. Your version might say uh, ass or jackass, something like that. It's sort of the classical rendering of this, which uh, I only point out because um, it, it does kind of, uh, we have two uses for that word. And so we choose to use the word donkey instead to avoid, you know, sort of the, the sound of the other word because it has this other use that is, you know, uh, should be censored or whatever. But in actuality, the the idea of, uh, you know, the donkey, the jackass, and a human being sort of acting in that way has long been a connection. And this story really plays on that a lot. So I'll continue to read the version here that uses the word donkey, but don't forget that by using that uh, term, that that connection, even in the Hebrew, is trying to make a connection between um, Balaam and um, his donkey. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing on the path with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the path and went into the field. 
So Balaam hit her to return her to the path. So already you have the donkey going somewhere. Balaam didn't want the donkey to go. And what does he do? He hits the donkey, even though that's exactly what he did in the first place with um, uh, responding to the Lord, right? Uh, so Balaam hit her to return her to the path. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow passage between the vineyards with a stone wall on either side. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord and pressed herself against the wall, squeezing Balaam's foot against it. So he hit her once again. The angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn to the right or the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she crouched down under Balaam. So he became furious and beat the donkey with his stick. And then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth. And she asked Balaam, what have I done to you that you've beaten me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, you made me look like a fool. So I hope you find as, as much humor in this as I do. I mean, again, notice the masterful storytelling that is here. I mean, these two phrases together, Balaam answered the donkey. It's ludicrous. This is a foolish thing to do that someone would answer a donkey. First of all, he's not even surprised that the donkey is talking. Like that would <laughs> that would be the most. I mean, you know the old joke about the two sausages in the frying pan, and one of them says, "Hey, uh, is it is this just me? Or is it getting kind of hot in here?" And the other sausage says, "Ah, talking sausage." Right? That's it's like we should be surprised when some inanimate object or some animal uh, has the power of speech. In fact, in all of scripture, if you don't count the serpent in Genesis one, if you consider that, you know, that's sort of Satan in some kind of form, um, then Balaam's donkey is the only talking animal in all of Hebrew scripture. Um, and uh, again, if you get into revelation and things like that, you got some things different, but this is a very odd thing that's going on here. There are not a lot of stories like this in the Old Testament. As we've looked at even the really crazy stories of the Old Testament, there are signs from God and the manna showing up and quail coming out of nowhere and this sort of thing. But still, everything is very much happening in the processes of the natural world. Here's something that's very unnatural that's happening. This donkey is speaking and a lot of satire is being created here in the storytelling. So Balaam answered the donkey, you made me look like a fool. <laughs> That's just it's really super funny to me. Uh, if I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you now. And of course, that's setting us up for what? Who is it that has a sword in their hand? The angel of God standing right behind him, right? Um, if I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you now. So um, Balaam passes judgment on the donkey that goes where um, he doesn't want it to go. Verse 30. But the donkey said, am I not the donkey you've ridden all your life until today? Have I ever treated you this way before? No, he replied. <laughs> Again, you know, he's not, not even acknowledging the talking donkey. And he's he's now not only having a conversation with it, but it's like, it's kind of a, <laughs> it's like, uh, it's like an old married couple a little bit, right? It's like, this, it's just this argument going on. Uh, it's just really funny to me. Okay. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the path with a drawn sword in his hand, which surely has to bring back to mind what he just said to the donkey, right? Balaam knelt and bowed with his face to the ground. <laughs> so don't miss this. Balaam, upon seeing the angel with the sword, does what? He now gets in the exact same position as the donkey. So again, in case you were missing the parallels here, um, they're really trying to point out uh, Balaam's kind of, a, kind of a, a donkey, a jackass, right? Okay. So um, the angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? Look, I came out to oppose you because what you are doing is evil in my sight. 
The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away from me, I would have killed you by now and let her live. And so, again, this last phrase, I would have killed you by now and let her live, echoes back to Genesis chapter 12 when Abram takes Sarah into Egypt. And he says, I'm going to tell him that you're my sister. If anybody asks, you say you're my sister. Otherwise, they will kill me and let you live. And so even the angel of the Lord is making a comparison between Balaam and this donkey as if they are Abraham and Sarah, the married couple. And there's nothing Abraham and Sarah at all about these two people. It's totally ludicrous. It's totally, it's totally foolish. And uh, that's, uh, that's what makes it so, so funny to me. Maybe it's not funny to you, but it's really funny to me. <clears throat> so Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the path to confront me. And now if it is evil in your sight, I will go back. Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but you were to say only what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the Moabite city on the Arnon border at the edge of his territory. Balak asked Balaam, did I not send you an urgent summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? In other words, what took you so long? Don't you know I'm going to pay you a lot? Balaam said to him, look, I have come to you, but can I say anything I want? I must speak only the message God puts in my mouth. So notice Balaam says, Look, I won't take your money. <laughs> he never says that phrase. He just says, look, uh, the message I give has got to be the one that God gives me. So Balaam went with Balak and they came to Kiriath Hazoth. Balak sacrificed cattle and sheep and sent for Balaam and the officials who were with him. In the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him to Bamoth Baal. From there, he saw the outskirts of the people's camp. This is, of course, the Israelite people's camp. Chapter 23. <clears throat> Balaam said to Balak, build me seven altars here, prepare seven bulls and rams. And so there's some sacrifices. God meets with Balaam and sort of says, yeah, hey, what's going on? And um, um, he says, go back to Balak and, and uh, tell him what I tell you. And so now here we have the first oracle in poem form that he gives to Balak. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come put a curse on Jacob for me. Come denounce Israel. How can I curse someone God has not cursed? How can I denounce Someone the Lord has not denounced. Notice the repetition. We talked about this uh, back in uh, Genesis mostly. I don't know that we've talked about it in this series, but Hebrew poetry is not a rhyming of sounds. It's more of a rhyming of ideas. So when you see uh, two lines that sort of essentially say the same thing, that is typical of poetry. That, that uh, repetition is um, sort of bringing home what's important by saying it twice, uh, same as any of us do. So when you see that repetition, and you know that you're looking at something that is poetry. And uh, essentially what happens here, we don't need to read the whole thing, but he says um, that uh, Israel is going to be blessed. And at the very, very end here, verse 11, what have you done to me? Balak asked Balaam. I brought you to curse my enemies, but look, you've only blessed them. It's almost as if uh, Balaam wasn't aware of what he was doing. Balak has to point it out. Um, and Balaam answers, well, shouldn't I say what the Lord puts in my mouth? As if, you know, hey, isn't that what you're paying me to do? So Balak says, uh, well, come to me to another place where you can see them. You'll only see the outskirts of their camp. You won't see all of them. And from there, you can put a curse on them. So he's almost like saying, well, just curse a little bit of them even, right? I'll come, come to this other place. Just curse some of them. So they go to this lookout field on the top of Pisgah. They build seven altars. They do the whole ritual again. Balaam um, says to Balak, stay here. I'll seek the Lord over there. He speaks with the Lord. And then he comes back with what the Lord has told him to say. Balak, get up and listen, son of Zippor, pay attention to what I say. God is not a man who lies or a son of a man who changes his mind. 
And so once again, he blesses Jacob, he blesses Israel. And he, again, in the very beginning, hammers this point that, hey, uh, didn't I already tell you? Didn't I already answer this for you? So again, Balaam has sort of had to learn this with God saying, didn't I tell you not to go? This, this is why, right? Didn't I tell you they're not going to be cursed? So now through Balaam, Balak is having to learn this. Hey, you were told once. There's no sense in having to do this, uh, having to do this all again. And so now in the second oracle, Israel is blessed. And uh, so down here at the end, verse 25, Balak told Balaam, don't curse them and don't bless them. So he's like, you don't have to, you know, fine, don't curse them, but at least don't bless them is what he's saying. Balaam answered him, look, didn't I tell you whatever the Lord says I must do? So there's a third oracle. And Balak said to, to Balaam, please come, I'll take you to another place. Maybe it will be agreeable to God that you can put a curse on them for me there. So uh, this points to some of the understanding of ancient worship, that the place of worship seemed to matter to the deity. And um, so you see that, hey, we'll go to this other place. Maybe God will be happy if it's coming from this other place. Of course, we know what's going to happen, right? Um, <clears throat> so there's the uh, offerings yet again. And look what happens at the beginning of verse 20, uh, chapter 24. Since Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go to seek omens as on previous occasions, but turned toward the wilderness. So what appears to have happened here is that Balaam has been doing some kind of... So later on in Joshua 13, uh, the Israelites will kill Balaam because they say that he used magic to, to be able to uh, tell, tell the... Uh, predict the future. And so um, what we see is that he's done some sort of magic or some kind of incantation or something. He's looking for some kind of omen, some kind of sign. So remember, he's not a, a devout follower of God. He seems to believe that God is his God, but he's not been part of the Israelite. He doesn't have the law. He doesn't have Moses or any of that stuff. He doesn't have the Ten Commandments. He doesn't understand. He's, he's, not, been, he's not been discipled, right? So he's just kind of done things his own way, mixing probably a lot of the practices of the pagan religions around him. So when he sees that Israel is going to be blessed, he has finally learned the lesson. There's no need for me to go seek this out. I don't need to read the tea leaves. I don't need to look at fortune cookie or anything like this. I don't need to do that this time. I know what the Lord is going to say. Balaam has learned the lesson. So we see some progression. We see some spiritual maturity, even from Balaam, who is um, at, at best neutral, at worst uh, he's he's not really a great guy, right? He's we've seen he's <laughs> he's not really the best. Um, so he turns toward the wilderness, meaning where the the Israelites are camped. When Balaam looked up and saw Israel encamped, tribe by tribe, the spirit of God came on him, and he proclaimed this poem. Okay, that's a big deal. The spirit of God coming on him. Who else has that happened to so far in the Bible that we've read that I can think of? Only Moses and the elders. Uh, the Spirit fills Bezalel so that he can uh, build the tabernacle and instruct others how to build the tabernacle. As far as I know, Bezalel is the only person in the Old Testament that is filled with the Spirit. Everyone else, including Moses, the Spirit is on him. And so um, this is a big deal for Balaam, who's not even an Israelite, it appears, to have the Spirit of God on him. And so this poem that comes next is not just the words of Balaam, but again, is the spirit speaking through Balaam, the oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes are open, the oracle of one who hears the sayings of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls into a trance with his eyes uncovered. So again, notice this eyes are open. That's going back to the eyes being opened and seeing the angel of God there. There's this running motif from since Genesis 1 of light, of sight, of seeing. We see that again here. 
And once again, he blesses uh, the tents of Jacob. How beautiful are your tents of Jacob, your dwellings, Israel. And he goes through uh, a number of blessings here. Really beautiful poem that unfortunately we don't really have time to read. Balak is really furious. And so Balaam turns around and says, hey, didn't I t previously tell you that even if you give me your whole house full of silver and gold, I could not go against the Lord's command. This is not Balaam being um, noble. I don't think this is Balaam saying, well, you ought to pay me anyway, because I told you <laughs> I told you I was only going to do what God said. So I don't think Balaam is is saying, don't pay me and being noble. I think he's saying, hey, you still owe me anyway, because I did what I said I was going to do. Uh, and then the fourth oracle is against Moab and against the other. Remember, there's the other tribes and kings, the elders of the other places around with him. And he gives these oracles to all them that they're all going to be destroyed. And it ends with Balaam going back home and Balak goes home. So uh, fun was had by all. So um, uh, one thing I, I want to say historically is um, here in, um, and where was this? This was found in, um, I forget the um, now where this was found, but it was over, this was not found in Jerusalem or in Israel. This, uh, there's an inscription on a wall. Let me see if it's in my notes. Um, it was found in Jordan in 1967. So in the area around sort of near Moab and Ammon, okay? So um, found in 1967 in Jordan, they found this wall inscription. And if you look at this drawing and you'll see in the center is where it says Locust 34. There's a pit and there was some fragments that were found in there. And then down in the bottom corner of this wall here, there's a thing that's labeled Section 1 Fragments. There's some fragments that were found there. And then there was the inscribed wall. And this is sort of what it looked like. This is the things that are listed there on the wall. And the text that's there refers to Balaam, the son of Beor, a divine seer is he. And uh, here are some of the fragments that are in uh, a museum, I think maybe in London, that um, are laid out in sort of being pieced back together. And again, uh, you have the same text that says, the misfortunes of the book of Balaam, the son of Beor, a divine seer is he. And it contains a lot of pieces of the story that we just read here in Numbers 22 through 24. And I just show you that briefly to say, Balaam is a real guy. This story is a story that, um, this is, this is, a story that was found outside of Israeli territory. And so it was a story that was known outside of Israel about Balaam. Balaam was known, the story was known. And so um, you can draw a lot of conclusions from that. But I just want to say when people, again, try to tell you the things that happened in the Old Testament, there's no archaeological evidence for them. There's no evidence that these people really existed. Just not true. Here, you can go and look at these things in a museum. They really exist. So let's talk about some of the points of the story here before we completely run out of time. So what's what's the what's the point of the story? Well, the first thing here really is to see, right? We see that where uh, Balaam is waiting on a word from the Lord, and he has to have his eyes opened, and um, he lifts up his eyes. Uh, he has his eyes open. He falls into a trance with his eyes open. We see this theme over and over again to see. Uh, Balaam, you know, we ask, is Balaam good or bad? Well, just because he's a human, we know that all humans are evil from their youth. Uh, but we also, again, like I said, here in Joshua 13, we see down at the bottom of the screen there, verse 22, the Israelites also killed Balaam, son of Beor, who used magic to tell the future. And here's in the New Testament in Jude, again, down at the end where he's talking about blasphemers. 
And and verse 11, woe to them, for they have traveled the way of Cain, have abandoned themselves to the error of Balaam for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. We just read about Korah. And so again, this assertion that Balaam made profit, again, there's nothing in the story of Balaam that says he was trying to get out of being paid and do something noble. In fact, it actually seems like he was saying, hey, you you, you owe me money. I did what I said I was going to do. So one question we have to ask is, why is this story here? Whenever you see an odd story like this, you got to ask, why is it here? Well, it really sets up the story that happens next. And so chapter 25, just look at the first two verses of Numbers 25. While Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people began to have sexual relations with the women of Moab. This is where Balak is from. This is the whole story we just read about. This is happening in Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices for their gods, and the people ate and bowed and worshipped to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. You know, from the text alone, there's no indication the people down in the camp had any idea what was going on with Balaam and Balak up above. And yet God was just, and God stood up for them. And after doing that, Israelites prostitute themselves with Moab. And as we go back to the text, we see this down here where it says Phineas intervenes. We won't take time to read it, but um, Phineas is the grandson of Aaron, the son of Eliezer. He's a priest and he takes his spear and he goes and he kills an Israelite man and woman. The fact that he kills them with one spear indicates that they were uh, lying on top of each other in the tent. And it says the spear goes through her belly. In Hebrew, the word for tent and belly, there are sound very similar, kaba, kava. And again, that pun is trying to point out something there that there was this uh, thing going on in the tent. And uh, in fact, the word for belly there is actually a euphemism. It's a better word might be womb, or there might even be more scandalous words that could be used there. And so the fact that Phineas does this as sort of a righteous vengeance on God's behalf um, shows how egregious this sin was of prostituting themselves with Moab after God just stood up for them. It's almost as if the nation of Israel, their eyes have not been opened That's the theme of this whole thing, right? Is sight and having your eyes open. So some things that we can learn from this as we wrap up. The Lord tells the truth and once is enough. The Lord blesses because he alone is good. Balaam's not good. Balak's certainly not good. The Israelites aren't good. Moses isn't even good. Moses is going to end up dying on Moab, staying in Moab, not getting to go in the promised land. The Lord blesses, why? Because he is good. Not because we're good, but because he is. And the Lord keeps his promises. And in keeping his promises, the Lord will make a way to keep his promises, even when it looks like there is no way. Even when we are the ones standing in the way of the Lord's promises. You see how God did what he was going to do uh, with Balaam and Balak, even though no one from Israel was involved in that story. So that really leaves us with two choices when it comes to the word of the Lord. And that is to either await the Lord's wrath or to have our eyes open and bow before him. So um, just once again, I just want to remind you that I hope that you found the story of Balaam and his donkey to be entertaining and funny. I think it's meant to be that even though it's Bible, it's scripture, it's inspired, it's the Holy Spirit, word of God. Uh, I think God wants us to laugh. And I think there's some funny things in this story. Uh, So I hope that it was entertaining, but I hope that you learned something from it. And I hope that it's uh, challenging in some way. 
and uh, I hope that it will cause you to pray. Uh, my good friend Ryan, in his sermon this morning from Central, talked about praying with intention. And uh, so good that it, what the words that he had to say about praying intentionally, not just prayers over food and, you know, prayers when you go to bed or whatever, but really spending some time uh, praying with intention and praying the way we've seen prayers so far in um, the Genesis and in the whole Torah that we've been studying, praying, interceding for other people. That's the number one way that we see people going into prayer. And we see that happening here when the Spirit comes on Balaam, that he intercedes on behalf of Israel and gives, pronounces the Lord bless, the Lord's blessing over them. So um, as you make choices, as you're deciding about your life, and when you're faced with doing what you want to do and awaiting the Lord's wrath or having your eyes opened, let's pray to have your eyes opened. Or as they would say in Acts chapter 2, to repent, to turn around, to have your eyes opened to the way you should have been going, go back to the way. Um, that where Jesus says, follow me, come this way and, uh, and, and be baptized. And so if you haven't been uh, committed to repentance, if you haven't um, had a ritual cleansing and baptism, we can get that arranged for you. We can find that out. Send me a message, send me an email, send me a text, and we'll make that happen because uh, I want to see you just entranced with your eyes open over the beauty of the blessing of the Lord. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.